Hey, thank you so much for tuning in and welcome to the very first episode of Living with Endo, the A to Z of endometriosis. This is a special podcast in partnership with Endometriosis Australia, and I'm an ambassador for them. My name is Ellie Angel Mobs. In this very first episode, I wanted to educate you about this illness that affects one in nine women. And to educate you all about it is one of Australia's top gynecologists. He is a genius. He is one of the kindest humans you will ever meet. And he is such an incredible advocate when it comes to endometriosis. His name is Professor Jason Abbott. Hi, Ellie. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. How are you? Now, we had to get you on this podcast because you know everything when it comes to endometriosis. You are the medical director for Endo Australia. You are a professor at UNSW. Your list of qualifications, I'd be here all day if I read them all out, but you do run Alana Healthcare in Sydney, which is where I first met you and your manner, the way that you conduct yourself around your patients. It is just so refreshing and welcoming. And that's why you are so popular. Thank you, Ellie. That's very kind. I feel, I feel like you're pumping me up. I'm, I now oh, yeah. I'm a bit nervous and anxious about what I need to do and say. Well, I need to make sure that people know exactly <laughs> who you are and why we've got you on for this special show. So firstly, what is endometriosis? So endometriosis is the finding of tissue that's similar to the lining of the uterus outside of that organ. And it usually sets up camp in the pelvis, although it can occur outside of the pelvis. And when those areas of tissue become inflamed, it can cause symptoms that include different types of pain, general symptoms um, like fatigue, like headache, like um, uh, all kinds of other body symptoms, and it can contribute to infertility. So the two sort of principal areas that we associate with endometriosis are different types of pains and subfertility. And that's where we get into trouble with this disease. So you're talking about the pain and the symptoms. For mm. me, it was painful periods from the age of 16. I was taking time off school, off work, and then I also really struggled to go to the bathroom. The, the thought yeah. of opening my bowels, absolute hell. What are other symptoms for girls? Yeah, so you've described many of the classic symptoms associated with the different kinds of pelvic pain. And dysmenorrhea or painful periods is an absolute classic that's associated with endometriosis. And here's the sort of tricky part of endometriosis because we know that painful periods occur um, for most girls and women, uh, around about 90% of women and girls will have a painful period. And we also understand that about 50% of women will find their periods painful each and every time. And that's just because of the process of menstruation. You're producing pain-producing chemicals, and that can uh, contribute to, to the symptoms. However, most of the time, they can be relatively simply controlled with things like anti-inflammatories, some paracetamol, maybe a hot water bottle. Mm. Um, but it's when that pain really stops you in your tracks. And you've described very nicely that from an early age, often uh, when you start getting your periods in your teenage years, that the symptoms progress and you get quite difficult, problematic periods, and it stops you from going to school, it stops you from going to work. And that's really what we're talking about here, this very problematic period that means that you can't get about your normal daily life. Mm. Now, that's not the only issue. We also find 
pain when you're opening your bowels, pain when you're using your bladder, lower back pain, and pain with intercourse for girls and women who are sexually active as well. And these are some of the other pelvic pains that herald the possibility of having endometriosis. It's not just pains that can cause problems. Um, it's also the, the downstream effects of what those pains contribute to. And many, many women with endometriosis describe this very deep, heavy fatigue, things that they really just can't get off the couch, they can't do anything. Mm. Uh, migraines become a factor. And these can be either cyclic in tune with menstruation or they can occur just out of the blue. And it's this conglomerate of symptoms that we know can be one of the the principal issues that you find with endometriosis. You listen to that list and it is debilitating for so many women because it is women's business Mm. for us to open up and go to the doctor or even just have a conversation with our our parents. Like, I'm not feeling well. It's almost like this taboo subject. And I know growing up, even though my mum and I were extremely close, you know, she's a retired nurse. And even the thought of going to her and asking for some pads and tampons, I was horrified at. And then when she got this inkling of, oh, Ellie's asking for a lot of Panadol, she's put two and two together. And because she knew about endo having had it herself, we had that information. However, there is a lot of, of women who haven't been exposed to this disease that's at right. all. And I'd be thinking, they're going, oh, I don't want to go to the doctor for a painful period. Like that's, I'll just harden up. The painful periods, it, it is not normal. And if it is affecting your day-to-day life, then it is really important that you take that step. You book the appointment with your GP and find someone like yourself because you need to be taking those steps. That's right. And I think what you've described there is, first of all, an awareness and an understanding of what is normal and what is not. And that can be really difficult. Now, we know that uh, the genetics of endometriosis mean that you're about seven to eight times more likely to have endometriosis if your mum had endometriosis. But what you're describing is very common where mothers of girls who have painful periods might say, well, I always had painful periods and I just got on with it and I hardened up. And it's a really common phrase that I hear. And so you just need to do so too. The simple fact of the matter is mum probably had endometriosis as well. And so understanding and an awareness around that can make a big difference. And we're starting to get better penetration into the general community, helping to uh, educate general practitioners to the fact that if you're getting these symptoms and they're not responding to these very simple techniques and you're missing school or work or it's interfering with your life, then that's not normal and it is about time that we need to think about stepping it up and finding out what might be going on. Mm, And that's where it does get tough because it's not an easy disease to diagnose. It's not a simple blood test. It's not ticking these boxes or filling out a survey. The only official way of being diagnosed is via the surgical procedure, a laparoscopy. So it's a pretty drastic thing to to get a, a diagnosis. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the things you want to do is to understand, right, well, what is going on here? And is there anything that's very problematic and potentially life-threatening. That's always, you know, first on any doctor's list. Is there something here that I need to be absolutely acutely aware of? And if you've done the simple things and then you're still having problems and symptoms, you do need to have some further investigations. And that's usually going to be something relatively simple, like an ultrasound to start off with. And whilst an ultrasound can't diagnose endometriosis about 50% of the time and certainly in the early stages of disease it's not particularly helpful. In the later stages of disease it is more helpful 
And the other thing about ultrasound is it's good for us to tell uh, what it's not. And so that can be you know, important as well. So we always want to exclude other things in addition to thinking that it might be endometriosis. But of course, if you have an ultrasound and you find that that's normal and there's nothing else terrible going on, but you've still got symptoms, we still need to do something about those symptoms. Mm. And that's where we need to start having the discussion, right? Here are some options on the table for you. I'm going to lay down these options and I'm going to help us to go through and understand you're quite likely to have endometriosis. And whilst a surgery is the only way to categorically diagnose it, we could still make a clinical diagnosis of endometriosis and work with that and say, right, here's some options that might be suitable without going down that route. How do you feel about any of these options? And as long as we're having that discussion, making it very open, uh, and, and a clear understanding about what it is and what it isn't, then I think that that's a really good place to start. Mm, absolutely. And what are the current treatment options out there? Because there is some medications that you can take. Um, some people will, you know, uh, change their lifestyle and that will improve their symptoms. Yeah. So there's lots of different buckets. And I like to refer to, you know, the what you pick out of different buckets. And we've got the sort of self-care bucket. And you've mentioned some of those. People do talk about diet, exercise, lifestyle, yoga, meditation, all those things that you can do uh, yourself to help. And I think that's a fantastic place to, to start. And that's one bucket. Then we've got the simple analgesic bucket. So the things like Panadol and uh, particularly the anti-inflammatories, very, very helpful. We do tend to stay away from stronger uh, painkillers or the opioids because they can have potential long-term problems. So that's another bucket, a medical bucket. We've then got the hormone bucket. And in the hormone bucket are a range of different options, things like the oral contraceptive pill and different types of progesterone. And in the pill, you've got estrogen and progesterone. And you can use either that combination or just progesterone on its own. And that can be taken as an oral tablet. It can be in a rod that goes in the arm. It can be in an IUD. And so there's lots of different, or an injectable as well. So there's lots of different forms of progesterone and they are all the different kinds of hormones. And hormones really are there to try and give you the same hormone profile each and every day and to also reduce the chances of you ovulating and indeed menstruating because we know estrogen uh, endometriosis is an estrogen driven disease and therefore if we can make the dose of estrogen constant and lower than what you would normally produce then that can be really helpful as well but not everyone responds to hormones not everyone likes them um, and and so we need to take that into consideration in addition. So our next bucket is the surgical bucket, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and you know you can dip your hand into that and pull up surgery. And yes, you can have a laparoscopy and that definitely can give you the diagnosis and you would treat it at the same time. Uh, but that's not the be all and end all because we know that for women who have endometriosis and have a surgery, even when it's all removed, the chance of recurrence is about 30%, one in three over a five-year period. So mm -hmm. it's not always the end result. And of course, I mentioned earlier that if your genes are the things that's causing the disease, we don't change your genes when we do a surgery. And so what we're, we're doing is really treating the end result. And it would be very nice if not only could we remove the disease, but we could push the magical gene button that was causing the disease in the first place. But we don't yet have that answer. Now, every 
every woman is different. And every woman you, is different. You mention all of the different treatment options there. Mm. So it's not just going to be, well, if you take this or my friend's doing this, if you do that, that's going to help. So it's really Correct. important to, to get a, a good plan in place and figure yes. out, right, if I cut out bread or if I yeah. do yoga or if I do this, this and this, this is the way it works for me. So it's not just Correct. going to be a, a quick Google fix to try and find that, that one thing that helps. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really important that things are individualized, Ellie, as well, because we do know that, you know, we have what we call these downstream effects of endometriosis. And whilst those little lesions cause inflammation, they're not necessarily the only things that contribute to the symptoms and the pain. And so for women and, and, in your original description, you said you were always really fearful about going to the toilet and, mm. you know, opening your bowels. Mm. And that symptom, which is called dyskesia, which is the technical term for painful pooing, uh, is really common in women who have endometriosis. And that can indicate to us that, in fact, what's happening is there's the downstream effect of the pelvic floor muscles going into spasm. And when we hear some of the symptoms, and that might be painful pooing, it might be difficulty in weeing. You know, when you when you go to the toilet to do a wee and you have difficulty in starting your wee, then that can sometimes be a sign that those pelvic floor muscles are really contracted and too tight. And in that situation, simple things like physiotherapy are really helpful. And I have, you know, I'm very lucky because in the places where I work, we have what I call the vagina physiotherapists. And they are heaven. <laughs> and, and they are marvellous people. And again, it's just an awareness that there are muscles involved in this area and they can contribute to pain, as can nerves. And we can downregulate those nerves with medications. And that's a different kind of bucket. So there's two more buckets to add to our list. We've got the physiotherapy bucket and we've got the non-hormonal other nerve modifying drug bucket as well. So, you know, we do have a couple of buckets to choose from, but you're quite right. It's important that we pick out the combination from the different buckets that suits the individual. And different people want different things and different people are going to need different things over the course of their reproductive life. And speaking of reproduction, it can affect your fertility. I know, mm. unfortunately for me, um, I am unable to, to have kids because of mm. complications from endo. But a lot of other women are being really fortunate enough to fall pregnant with endo. So everyone is different. What is the chance of infertility if you do have endo? Yeah, so we know that about one in three women with endometriosis will have troubles with pregnancy. And so that means that if you think, there's two ways to think about that, I suppose. It means that there are a lot of women, of course, who will have problems. And we definitely try and find ways to assist those women and those couples to try for a family. Mm. Um, but that's not always possible, as you've, as you've mentioned. And, and, you know, that's, you know, always troubling. However, for the majority of women who have endometriosis, their fertility isn't necessarily affected. So that's a positive thing. And I think we need to remember that. Uh, so that two out of three women shouldn't have any problems. But for the one out of three, we do need to think about how we're going to intervene. And of course, with reproduction, things are quite different because a lot of what we do when you're not trying to become pregnant is change the way that your menstrual cycle works, which will often mean hormonal control. Mm. And of course, when you're trying for pregnancy, you can't have any of those things. So it means we're much, much more limited in what we can offer. So it's then working with the particular symptoms, not having any hormones, cycling naturally, and then considering assistance. And so things like IVF might come up on the uh, uh, radar to help women to try for a pregnancy. But even then, we know that some women still will have troubles and that that's always a problem. And so we need to think about what other things we've got to offer in that situation. 
Now, speaking of pregnancy, I remember when I first went to see a specialist many years ago, and this is before I was officially diagnosed with stage four mm. endometriosis. I think I, I know what you're going to say uh, here, Ellie. <laughs> I had a doctor say to me, ah, oh, Ellie, all you need to do is go and have a baby and you'll be fine. And I looked at my now husband. We'd only been dating for about six months at that time. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, Jamie. We have to go and have a kid now. This is the only way. And he's probably there going, I'm going to run for the hills. But it's so common that so many women have been told by doctors who may or may not understand that having a baby will cure endometriosis. Is that true or not? (laughs) It is definitely not true. And and it's for the same reason that I spoke about earlier, about surgery not being able to cure endometriosis. Mm. We don't necessarily change the path. All you're doing is changing a specific time frame during the course of you having a baby, and if you breastfeed, so you you know you have a baby, you've got nine months of being pregnant, you might breastfeed for a year, and in so doing, what that does is it changes your hormone profile, so you might get two years of having few symptoms. Now, that's a really good thing, and then it might be that your symptoms return after you've had that period of breastfeeding. And of course, if you go on and you have a couple of babies in a relatively short space of time, which is a very common thing for women to do, many women will notice that their symptoms will reduce during the the process of having a baby or being pregnant and then uh, afterwards. But I see many, many, many women who have had a baby who still have problems with their endometriosis. And it's definitely not a treatment. All it's doing is is allowing you to have the life course that you want. And that's that's a really important thing. We definitely want that to happen, but it should never be a prescription. Never, ever, ever. So we don't prescribe it, as you said. It's pretty it's pretty unnerving <laughs> it's to pretty say you just move. need to pop out and have a baby. And you know, I've certainly been uh, been told stories of teenage girls who are told, oh you just need to pop off and have a baby and you know been horrified sure. when they're in the, when they're in there with their mum or something and they're 16 and they're told to go and have a baby. So that's not not really appropriate. And we can definitely work without that. We do want women to think about when in their life, uh, if and when they want to have a baby, remembering that not all women want to have babies. But if they do, they need to, to factor that in and then be there to help and assist and guide them through that process. You mentioned teenagers and I've read one myth that teenagers don't get endometriosis. It's an older Mm. woman thing. That's Mm -hmm. not the case. Have you also found as well that there's more uh, teenagers coming through and being diagnosed because there's more awareness? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the the greatest uh, things that we've really been able to demonstrate in the last sort of 15 years and with greater awareness. It was very much Uh, thought that young girls did not get endometriosis and therefore if you were having problems that as a teenager that it couldn't be endometriosis and that's absolutely 100% a myth and for many women who have problems with endometriosis when we take a good history they'll say I had problems with my periods right from the time that I first got them at the age of 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 and ever since then I've always had problems pain, heavy periods, um, you know, missed time away from school, couldn't really go and see my friends because of all of my symptoms. But everyone said, oh, that's just normal and you can't have endometriosis. Definitely not the case. And we are seeing a, a sort of downtrend of time to diagnosis. And it used to be that it would take more than 10 years for a diagnosis of endometriosis to be made. But as we've become more aware, as we've recognised that young women can and do get endometriosis, we are making that that uh, link earlier on and we're starting programs 
that can help young women to understand that here are some options and we might pick from a, a couple of the different buckets, talk to them about their symptoms and put them into place and say, yes, this, this is likely to be endometriosis. Mm. Now, not all painful periods are endometriosis. That's important. Um, but again, if you're having painful periods, they probably still need to be treated and assessed. So excluding the diagnosis of endometriosis can be helpful as well because that may also then have a knock-on effect and we can talk about other things, what it could be, the impact on fertility, etc., in the longer term. So young women can and do get endometriosis and we need to be aware of it and treat it early. I know through Endometriosis Australia, one big thing that we're all for is just for getting information out there and creating Mm. awareness because it's still such an unknown disease. And by having conversations like this, like doing this podcast, hopefully it's just going to lead to more funding for research and then one day a cure? Ah, it would be very nice, wouldn't it? I dream of the cure for endometriosis. I really do. And I think that, you know, around the world, there are a whole bunch of people who've been working in the area of uh, the genetics, of the causes, of the different types of uh, options that might help us to find that cure. Um, Lots of time, effort and energy has been put into this and we're now starting to see some research funding flow on. And of Mm. course, this, uh, this year we've had the uh, Medical Research Future Fund uh, announced $10 million worth of, of specific funding in endometriosis, and that's a fantastic start. Uh, sadly, that's not going to find the cure for endometriosis, but it is going to put us on a pathway, and it means now that we've got uh, a bunch of researchers around the country who are doing some good projects, and that's going to really start a foundation for us to build that next level. Uh, I'm getting old now, Ellie, I have to say. No, and, you're not. You're still uh, young at heart. <laughs> Uh, whilst uh, I used to dream about finding a cure, I don't think that's going to be any time in the near future. But what I do hope is with this additional funding that we're going to be able to get better treatment options, better understanding, better education and awareness. And then it's going to just be a foundation thing. We're going to start building on that really solid foundation. And probably in the next generation, once I'm retired and, and uh, out of out of the, the circulation, that the next group of researchers, and there's a bunch of fantastic researchers coming through are going to have the next steps and and have all of the skills that they need to do exactly that and help us find a cure. Professor Jason Abbott, you have dedicated your career to researching and advocating for improving diagnosis and treatment for endo sufferers. So on behalf of us all, thank you for what you do. Um, It is amazing that you are so passionate about this disease and wanting to help people like myself and those listening right now. Just the biggest thank you ever and keep on doing what you are doing. Absolutely. It's it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Ellie. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, some more podcasts in the future with you and the Endometriosis Australia team. An amazing insight into this illness and we promise to bring you more throughout this special series. Thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of Living With Endo the A to Z of endometriosis. And if you want any more information, the place to go is endometriosisaustralia.org. Stay safe and I'll chat to you soon.